Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to our latest deep dive. I have been wanting to do this one for years. I am so glad it finally happened. We invited back producer Terry Manning to discuss the comeback or slash breakthrough slash reintroduction album of ZZ Top from 1983, Eliminator. Uh, this is the album that had Sharp Dressed Man and Give Me All Your Lovin' and Legs and TV Dinners on it. And I think we would not think of ZZ Top as the legends they are without this album. I think this album obviously reintroduced them for a new generation. People like me who grew up in the 80s. This is the ZZ Top we think of when we think of that band. And the videos and the songs and the merging, the ballsy, just audacious belief by Billy Gibbons to merge blues rock with new wave is just out of this world and yet it worked and Terry helped make that happen shouldn't have worked could have been horrible and yet it worked and and uh, we're they're legends because of it now I will tell you there's sort of a sub history to this album that is not as good and Terry for legal and personal reasons could not get into that side of the story and I honored that if you want to know more you can Google it. There's unfortunately, there's lawsuits and legalese and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so we decided to focus on the positive and that's what this is. I hope you will enjoy it. It went on to sell almost 20 million copies. It's gigantic. And I was hoping Terry would come back to talk to us about it. And he did. So, okay. When we talked before and, uh, a couple of years ago, you had, uh, you had addressed or, uh, touched on a story about, in the early 80s, Billy Gibbons is off traveling around Europe, and he's going to discos, and he's getting really turned on by the new wave sound that he's hearing with all the synthesizers and drum machines. And there's Human League, and there's OMD, and there's Depeche Mode, and he's thinking, how can I incorporate what they do into what I do, which I think is a really revolutionary thought, because they are a blues-to-the-core band, and to even think about entertaining synthesizers or drum machines feel so counterintuitive to what they do. Yeah, it was really quite uh, the, it was quite the change at, on one side and it was quite the, let's stay the same on another mm. road. Mm -hmm. So it's really tough. It, it, when you say incorporate what they do of Depeche Mode and others, I wouldn't, I would say he wasn't incorporating what they do as much as he wanted to, well, it's really tough to describe it. I'd say that Billy wanted to stay current, stay modern to a degree, and to and to be pop, stay popular, of course. And uh, he also noticed that in the dance clubs, when he would go to a club, they would play uh, because he was there as a guest, and people would say, "Oh, look, there's Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top." So they'd put on a, a Lagrange or something like that, a Tush, you know, something to. Uh, to play while he's there said he noticed just offhand that the people didn't dance to their music quite the same way they danced to the newest totally tight machine generated at that time very modern style of music and he just wanted to make sure that everyone could enjoy ZZ Top D why not dance to it that's a big form of enjoyment to many people, especially the ones that go to those clubs. So he wanted to incorporate that ethos into it. And uh, Billy came to me and, and said, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, for one thing, 
uh, the drummer, Frank Beard, a great, great drummer and a, a wonderful member of ZZ Tops from day one mm -hmm. and still right there, was at that time, as is now known, having some substance problems mm -hmm. and wasn't uh, quite drumming up to his previous wonderful capacity mm -hmm. so and ability. So uh, Billy said, what are we going to do? You know, that if it's got to be really danceable and tight. And I've noticed uh, these people dancing and he did the whole club thing. So I started going to clubs, watching the people dance. I hate clubs. I hate dancing. <laughs> but <Me> that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Many musicians do. But yeah. uh, I would, you know, make notes and notice and see what tempos uh, got the people up off the floor. And, of course, now everyone knows that 120 is sort of the the groove basic dance tempo of all time. Mm -hmm. So uh, we started just sort of keeping in that general ballpark when it fit the song. Mm. So uh, I suggested to Billy, and it was radical because we tried, we started with the band and some of the songs that were pre-written and demoed, uh, we took the demos and we're trying to either not recreate them, but take what was on the demo and make it record ready rather than a, a demo, mm -hmm. as is always the case. So uh, it just wasn't working out. The timing wasn't there as he wanted and uh, as I also wanted. So he said, we've got to change things. So uh -huh. I got a drum machine uh -huh. and, and I learned how to program it. And I took uh, the things that Frank actually played on the sessions and recreated them, but in absolute machine perfect timing mm -hmm. uh and then i overdubbed symbols and some hi-hats and certain things to make it more realistic mm -hmm. and more drum dr real drummer like uh and on a couple of occasions we took some things that frank had played on the original tracking when we tried some crashes and a couple of tom rolls and things mm -hmm. that he played and, and flew them in so that he is on it he's there uh but the 99%, 95%, whatever percent mm -hmm. of the drumming was on a machine. Okay. I just, I, I wouldn't say that for years. And I yeah. still, I still get a catch in my throat when I talk I about it. I bet. Because no rock record had ever had that at the yeah. time, real rock and roll record. And this is a, a three piece blues based band mm -hmm. that had built their career on, <laughs> on mm -hmm. being uh, Lightning Hopkins meets whatever uh, yeah. blues type music. So uh, it was it was very radical and we were a bit afraid of it. But once we had done one of the first ones, uh, which was Give Me All Your Lovin' and Sharp Dressed mm -hmm. Man, which is a couple of the first things we we I tried that way. Uh, and then we played it back with some real guitar and some the uh, real bass and things on it. It just sort of went boom. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. It's one of those moments that, that I've been very, very, very lucky. And I say luck because uh, it, it's so much of it is just right place, right time fortune mm -hmm. that I've had over my career. But on a few occasions on the session, you get that chill up your spine. You get that, yeah raising on the back of your neck going oh my god mm -hmm. this is really something it's different mm -hmm. it's exciting this is going to be a huge and yeah. you can always think that you go in a session and you 
If you're not thinking, boy, this is great. Look what we're doing. If you don't think it's great, why the blank are you in there doing it? You know, that's why you do it. You right. go to a session to really do well. Yeah. And you always think that uh, as much as you can. But there are just those very special moments mm-hmm. when you go, oh, no doubt here. This is yeah. this is huge. Yeah. And I remember, I'll never forget, just listening back once we had put the real guitar on on uh, sharp dress man mm-hmm. and had the the whole drum machine thing and had the synthesizers doing the the da 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 syncopated rhythm things. Once I listened and Billy Billy and I listened alone to the first real playback of all that together, we just turned our heads at each other and looked <laughs> in the eyes and just what have we done? Yeah, yeah. But that that does beg the question indeed, what have we done? Have we mm-hmm. changed? Mm. the the core meaning of ZZ Top too much. Mm. And there are fans, I'm sure there's still fans out there who just go, no, I like the early stuff. I like the blues. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. the more three-piece. And then there are the fans who maybe started with Eliminator and went on or were fans all along and then went, mm-hmm. wow, what is this? I love it. Who, right. who do it. But uh, the proof is in the pudding, as they used to yeah. say, as yeah. far as sales is concerned. Yes. And of went through the roof it was by far 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 their biggest selling ever in their mm-hmm. ca- album in their catalog and was i went several places in the world in that year that it was out everywhere you went you mm-hmm. were hearing it played whether it was a caribbean island or somewhere in europe or yep. or whatever you heard it over and over and over everyone was playing it that yeah. and thriller were just the mm-hmm. the life-changing albums of that era it yeah. seemed so uh, we can't argue with the fact that we changed it for the better mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. I do get the uh, the Blues Police Corps lo- mm-hmm. lovers of the old things. I get that because I was one. Of, I was one of those too. Yeah. But you do what you got to do to yeah to, to serve the client, to serve right. the band, to to serve the band and the brand. You know what it remind what it, I just remembered it reminds me of the reaction probably to what van halen would have been getting with 1984 because and i i was really young i mean i was nine years old when eliminator came out and 10 years old when jump came out and so i'm just now learning about these bands i didn't have any prior history with cz top or van halen and to me that's what they were these ba- these hard rock bands with synthesizers is what they were. But you hear stories of the diehard Van Halen fans when they first hear Jump, and it's a synthesizer, and there's no guitar for a long time. And it's like, <laughs> why is Eddie Van Halen, of all people, not playing more guitar on this song? But the sales are there, and they're classic songs, and they live on to this day. And you hear, I don't think... You hear, you yes. hear Jump all the time now. In all fact, the many- time. I'd say more people than not, when they think Van Halen, think that dun 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 And I'm sure Eddie was having the same infatuation kind of feelings with technology that Billy was. How do we well, get these people to dance to our music when we're exactly. not a dance kind of band? And Billy and, and Eddie were uh they were friends and I know they talked uh after Eliminator was so big, I know that Billy and Eddie had some talks about what was done. And I remember Billy telling me a couple of stories about when they were producing that album and how it had very similar connotations to what we had, had done. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, oh, yeah, that's a good, a good uh, correlation there. I believe it. So my understanding of the story leading up to Eliminator beyond the dance clubs and the synthesizers, Frank has been in rehab in the late 70s. He's bought a house in Houston, in the Houston area, and he's taken up golf. And he's hired a guy named Lyndon Hudson, who I didn't know that much about, to come and build a studio within his house. And to keep himself sort of clean and sober, Frank plays a lot of golf. What I am curious, though, and, and this is something, as you touched on earlier, that you probably couldn't have said until the documentary came out, is that because of the nature of the sound and the technology involved, Dusty and Frank are not, it's not the three guys in a studio jamming and figuring things out. Not in every case. No, and... and uh... I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't say it for many years and it, I never say it now to take any glory in it myself no, or anything I know. like that. It's just what you do, what you have to do to get the best album you can get at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's somewhat known that there are many, many bands and of, uh, often very successful bands that have been in a similar situation. Uh, you could say things about Def Leppard, for instance. Mm-hmm. And the drums on Def Leppard are certain other things on Def Leppard and who sang totally. the backing vocals and whatever. And, mm-hmm. and and it even goes back to it's a question of did the band play on the record, I guess, is the basic question here. You can go back to the wrecking crew in, in Los Angeles in California mm-hmm. in the 60s, uh, especially. And so many bands that had big hits there did not play at all on yeah. those records. The singer would usually sing because that's a, mm-hmm. a, a a specific sound that you can't really have mm-hmm. unless you're Billy Vanilli. You can't change that. <laughs> but uh, so uh, the Birds, uh, the yeah. Beach Boys, many many great bands had the Wrecking Crew, or uh, they were called later uh, the mm-hmm. the Los Angeles Top Session musicians. Pittman and the other wall of sound musicians <laughs> would later become known as the Wrecking Crew. And main point Alexa, <laughs> stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's Alexa. the first i'm leaving that in i love that <laughs> i don't know if you can hear much of it but alexa started telling us about the wrecking crew <laughs> I, I don't need to talk we got a girl here he knows more than me but anyway the uh the top it. session <laughs> the top session musicians in in la and it was in new york the same would play on the records because uh the the producers at the time, and I'm talking the 60s still, would say, well, the bands bands aren't good enough to play on records in many cases. So it was, and it was often especially drummers because uh, between uh, a Hal Blaine and a, and a band drummer, Hal Blaine being the Wrecking Crew main drummer, uh, there's a huge difference because those people play professionally every day on hit records. Yeah. And they know what to do and they know how to take direction. Uh, a producer can say something to a session musician that he can't say to a band musician because it yeah. offends them. This is my band and blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And I get mm-hmm. that too. I've been in the same situation mm-hmm. <laughs> with my mm-hmm. band when coming, coming up, but uh, to a professional, you just say, sure, you're paying me. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's just how it works. So as time went along, you still have bands that don't, play everything on the records although mm-hmm. it changes much more so as time goes along 
to where mm-hmm. bands did start playing on their records, and especially when Pro Tools got there, and you could you could edit and take things out and yeah. copy and paste and all that sort of thing. But uh, it is true that uh, when you get to a point and it's not working well enough, what do you say? We're in there to start Eliminator. What do you say? Well, the timing's not good enough. It's not working. Let's just not make an album. We'll go home. That mm-hmm. doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You don't say that. You say, no. as an engineer or producer or a professional in in a in a big time session, you say, "Well, then let's do the best thing we can do to make yeah. the album as good as it can be, to still be what the band is, still keep." Mm-hmm. I hate the word branding, so but it is the brand sure. of a band. Yeah. It's that big. Uh, you want to keep that. You keep the mm-hmm. the basic core of what it is. But you still change with the times, and mm-hmm. you can look at an artist. I talk a lot. I'm sorry, but no, you, this is right. Yeah, you you can look at an artist. It's very different musically, and not my favorite music, maybe. But you can look at a Madonna, mm-hmm. and as the years go by, she has changed many, many, many things. Mm-hmm. Every year or two, things would change because she wants to invent the new Madonna, invent mm-hmm. the new music that she would have. And can you believe it? All these years later, people still talk about her and she's still uh, yep. a big act. That's uh, right. A Bruce Springsteen. Uh, yeah. He went to a, a special timing things on Dancing in the Dark. Yep. Uh, I'd say sort of copying what we did, but that's mm-hmm. not so But uh, a, lot, a lot of them did that right then. That's what they had to do to evolve and stay relevant. Yeah. What, what are, how are you serving your public as an artist? Mm-hmm. If you just give up and go home, yeah. you, you, that's no good. Yeah. So yeah, we brought we brought machines in, and the way it started, uh, the band first was in there playing. As I say, it wasn't really working to to Billy's liking and to my liking. And uh, Bill Ham, who was the manager and listed producer of the of ZZ Top, was just kind of listening to it and saying, yeah, okay, tomorrow we'll do better, whatever. Mm -hmm. So Billy and I started pretending to end the session Mm -hmm. about 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, saying goodnight to everybody. Mm -hmm. And I heard some similar things from the 1984 Van Halen thing, Mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, then we'd come, and everyone that's gone, we'd come back in at midnight and work three or four hours every night working on the, it the way we thought it should be. So we would take what Frank and Dusty had played and uh, would I'd put it into the drum machine, exact licks and everything that he played, uh, and just getting it timed just right, made my own samples rather than using the sounds in the drum machine uh-huh. because that's a bit cliche and, and isn't the real sound we wanted. Yeah. So I, I sampled with uh, AMSs and other things that uh, had just come out that you were able to use and sampled some sounds and took actually stole one or two, maybe Bob Clear Mountain. Are you out there? I might've borrowed one of your sounds and put in, (laughs) but mixed it it with other things. (laughs) And he knows which one, because many people have taken that one and Uh just borrowed it. Of course. But but then covered it up with other Uh samples that I put in and that I created myself. It yeah. was a start led us to the one that we use, not using theirs and, and stealing it and putting it into yeah. the record. Of course. But uh, so we would uh, over- redo a song, a one band, uh, one song track a night, but with 
the drum machine and then mm-hmm. uh, overdub either Billy or I would overdub cymbal crashes and different things. It's because cymbals and drum machines are terrible, you know, uh-huh. or they were at the time. Yeah. So just things we had to do to get it to sound as real band live as possible, but mm-hmm. be totally the word perfect is goes only so far, but to be as close to as, as it should be. Mm-hmm. And then Billy would overdub real guitar and either he would play a bass or uh, I would play a synthesizer or just different things. And then mm-hmm. we'd ha- have a whole new band track uh, mm-hmm. of what we did that day before with the band. Mm-hmm. Then this is the kind of funny and kind of sad part. It, I don't know if you know the show still game, a comedy mm-hmm. show out, out of Scotland. I recommend it to everybody, mm-hmm. but it, it's really hilarious, but every episode is has the pathos. It's so sad <laughs> that happened, and you're laughing, and you say, "I shouldn't be laughing." At this. Right. It's terrible what happened, but it's just it's kind of the same thing. We'd come in the next day with bated breath. What will people think? Mm-hmm. Play it, and immediately you'd hear the new version, and immediately Frank knew right away, and he would get this look in his eyes like sadness and anger and i don't blame yeah. him yeah and you know, like you know you're what are you doing to me you're taking me out of what mm-hmm. i do yeah and that's uh, it's terrible in a way mm-hmm. it's a horrible thing to do yeah but we weren't doing it on a personal level we were doing right. it on a professional level yeah uh try to be successful and of course in the end he participated in the success tremendously mm-hmm. so sure Hopefully it's balanced out over time. Yeah. But uh, Frank would know. Dusty would kind of have a quizzical look, and after mm-hmm. a while would would go be look, looking like, "Hey, I get this. What's going on?" <laughs> after we'd heard it, Bill Ham would say, "Damn, we did so much better than I even can remember. This is great. Let's start another one." And then we do the same thing over. So we got a bit. We got a little tired of this. Sure. Because. What I have to do every night when we came in, I would have to start setting up the drum machine, setting up the synthesizers, setting Mm up sample things. Uh, There were things at the time called Simmons drums that we would take some sounds out of and different uh, electronic drum things. So I I would put up five or six different machines Mm -hmm. or or more than that so that we could do what we wanted. And Mm -hmm. then when we finished at 4 or 4.30 in the morning, take it all down, carry it out, store it up, and we're just going, this is ridiculous. You know, why are we doing this? So I started bringing one machine a day in and just mm-hmm. leaving it, just leaving one set up. And Bill Ham would come in and say, what, what is that? I said, you remember, Bill, that's that blah, 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 whatever. Right. And we, the, it's the left-handed thingamajiggle, you know. Right. <laughs> That we used yesterday, and he go, oh, okay. And the next day, I leave a second thing, so, uh-huh. and he'd go, what were we using that? So yeah, yeah, you know, we used it on the chorus of whatever. Oh, okay. So <laughs> then we're thinking this is not going to work, but so many days, you know, wow, because we had a big rack stacked up high with things. Yeah. yeah. And so finally, Billy, the genius that he is, musically and in life, mm-hmm. philosophically said, I have a solution. I want you to go to one of those companies that makes door signs. Mm-hmm. You know, say president or, or <laughs> the, the lab or something like that. They're kind of plastic engraved black signs with white. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I know exactly what you mean. Go to one of those companies, 
get one made the size of a rack panel uh -huh. of the equipment we use and have this put on it, produced by Bill Ham in big letters. <sighs> and, and then I had that made 19 inches rack size by a three rack space thing. So it's a uh, uh -huh. pretty big si sign and in big letters produced by Bill Ham, drilled the holes in it, installed it in the rack as to Billy's instructions. So at the very top, then left the whole rack in there. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And the next day we walk in, the band's looking, Bill, uh, Frank and Dusty are looking up like, nah, uh -huh. cat the bag now. Bill Ham looks up at it, sees the sign and just starts nodding. <laughs> And he looked at Billy and said, "You guys, I've got some calls to make. You guys, should... <laughs> you're in good hands." <laughs> so at that, from there on, we were home free and able to do. Wow! Oh, that's genius. <laughs> but that's Billy. Is his brain? He knew, and I don't mean to demean Bill Hammond. Of course, way. of course. Without not. him, there would be no ZZ Top at all. Yeah, yeah there would be yeah. no success. For any of us, so wow. and he was the he and and Peter Grant of Zeppelin were the yeah. ultimate managers. Yeah. One was penultimate, the other was ultimate. I would it's hard to say which is which, although mm -hmm. Peter Grant mm -hmm. awfully hard to beat. But Bill Ham was an incredible manager yeah. and knew yeah. just what to do. And always the band was, or really Billy more than anybody was producing even mm -hmm. as much as Bill Ham or anyone else. And uh, so at this point, we, Bill Ham was able to get on the phone, do all of his managerial uh, things that he had to yeah. do, signing things, getting gigs, doing promotion, whatever it is he did, which is very important and made <laughs> everything that was done in the studio possible to be released and be a hit and everything. So it was a great, it worked out great. Incredible. It sure did. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> just every the genius of everybody and uh frank and dusty you know it may not have been easy while it was happening but i'm sure it was pretty nice playing to bigger crowds having big hits and all that kind of stuff one last um no i so one thing i want to mention this all happened in ardent studio in memphis and i read that they were all staying at the peabody while yes. this was going on i mean that's historic, obviously. That's where Martin Luther King was killed. That's where the ducks are. Is that no, no. normal? No, no. Martin Luther King was shot at the Lorraine Motel. Lorraine. Oh, that's right. I got yeah. Lorraine and Peabody they're, mixed they're up. They're close to each other, but very different. The You're Peabody right. is a, a large, uh, very swank, mini for the ducks. I, I conflated the, the two. Yes, Yeah, the course. Lorraine Motel was much more of a of a motel yes. than a hotel. Yes, yes, yes. Still, yes. A, of a course. Good, I've been there and toured both of these things. I completely conflated the two in my brain. And was let me say one, I'll say one thing that I always love to point out about the incredible Lorraine Motel. Uh, Steve Cropper and Eddie Floyd and Otis and those people, Otis Redding, would <laughs> all stay there when they were in town. Now, Steve lived there, but he would come. They would write the songs at the Lorraine Motel. Ooh. So Ooh. things like Knock on Wood and yes. other many, many. Hit, huge hit songs were written in the Lorraine Motel. Oh my gosh! Oh it's my incredible. gosh! And it's still there as part of yes. the uh, the uh, uh, yeah. The it's museum. a human rights museum now. Yes, yeah. The, yeah. Yes. 
Oh my gosh! Well, that was dumb of me to conflate the two, but I'm glad I, we got but, a good story. Yeah, out they, of it. ZZ were staying at the Peabody got hotel, it. hotel. Of course, of course. Okay, so uh, the album sold 11 million copies. It came out on March 23rd, 1983. <clears throat> well, Rolling Stone. Well, oh, what? It's it initially sold 11 million. Uh, estimates now have it at or near 20 million worldwide. Really? Sale. The last yeah. update I saw was 11 million, and you're right. That was probably in the nineties. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, it was ranked by Rolling Stone magazine, the 398th best album of all time. They did a Way top 500. Low. Way that? too low. Yeah. That was far too low in the numbers. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and they ranked it the number 39 best album of the eighties. And uh, that might be, that might be pretty close. So let's see. Track one, obviously give me all your loving. Um, this was the first single. It was my first introduction to ZZ Top, seeing those videos on Friday Night Videos. There was just nothing like it. It was revolutionary for a nine, 10 year old like me. That was, I think that's probably the perfect opening track because out of the gate, we know now that it probably wasn't actually real drums or whatever, but it sounds real enough that you're like, this is, these are my guys, ZZ Top, and they're back and they're doing something different. You know? Well, I purposely, when I sequence the album, which means the order the tracks go in, I uh, purposely put that first for a couple of reasons. One is the tempo of it. It's the exact perfect dance tempo. The other is that it starts with nothing but drum machine solo. And I wanted to get it there and just say, if you hate this, hate it now. <laughs> get it over with. Here it is alone all by itself if you can't take it then blank you here we go and nobody i will say only one person at the time within the first five years or whatever of that being out only one person ever said to me or I ever saw mentioned anywhere that it was a drum machine and that was bob it was bob ludwig who was the mastering engineer where we mastered took the tape and mastered to vinyl and he I said, oh, Bob, is it obvious? And he said, no, it doesn't sound like it. Oh. I didn't think it was, but I could tell by looking at the grooves because when something is in perfect tempo and because the grooves are going around in a, in a, at the constant speed, he said, you see a pattern in the grooves. If it's real drums, you don't ever see that pattern. But if it's that's... something that's perfectly timed, you see this little pattern in the when you hold the grooves at a certain angle and the light hits him and he said i looked down and there was the pattern and i said oh good so you don't and i said no i didn't <laughs> hear it as a drum machine nobody knocked it off that i oh. know of at the oh. time so that kind of that kind of gave us uh, a, a, a incredible start mm -hmm. that that song which i believe was the first single as well yep it was uh, uh that that comes out and just and it has such a great hook Yep. Billy had written such a great song. The, the funny thing about that song is that he intended it as an homage to the Rolling Stones, the type of songs that they had done. Now, I I, I don't quite hear it. I exactly. guess I can kind of hear a little bit of Start Me Up in yeah, Give Me All Your Lovin'. A little in bit. Every band, every band does uh, take something they love and does yeah. a, sort of a thing 
patterns. Something not, on the drums a little bit. I can sort of hear a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but but uh, the song, when we tracked it on the tape box, you just write a title. And Billy uh -huh. wrote down Stone, Stone's Rip because he hadn't written, <laughs> <laughs> he hadn't written the lyrics yet. Right. And of course, right. it's not a ripoff, and you can't. No, 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 no. Not at all. With any, any Stone song. It no. was just in Billy's mind, if I were uh, Keith Richards and, and, mm -hmm. and, and Mick Jagger, what would I write? Yeah. What would I be writing as a new song? And, so, and I've done that, too. I've sat down mm -hmm. at the piano and thought, if I were John Lennon, what would I be writing now? Yes. You know, you, lots of, of people do that. John Lennon would, would take songs and turn them around backwards mm -hmm. and take the chord progressions and start songs that way. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, Genius. Uh, so this was the Stones rip that, that then later he wrote the lyrics well after we had the track the track okay. written. So, okay. uh, huh? What is Do you, were you privy at all to the discussions around the videos? Because look, as great as all those songs were, the myth making that was happening to the band with the videos and the cars and the girls and the keychain, all of that is selling a. Not just a song, but an idea and a culture and a band. Were you privy to any of that? I got to hear about it. Okay. Uh, really, that as I'm sure you're well aware, the, the besides Billy and Bill Ham, the genius behind all of that is 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 Tim Newman. Tim Newman, who is yep. Rand, Randy Newman's cousin uh, out of L.A., and he had done a lot of very hip uh, commercials, mm -hmm. and now. You don't really normally at the time you didn't as a video when you wanted a music video, you didn't think first of let's get someone who does commercials mm -hmm. because at that time it was still anathema for a band mm -hmm. to be involved with commercials. Mm -hmm. You would everyone would turn down using their song in a commercial or what because it was it was crass. It was commercial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know if it was Bill or Billy who first had the thought of Tim Newman or exactly how it I've, I heard that story, but I've forgotten. But uh, Tim had done Levi's and other things that were very hip, young mm -hmm. person, hip commercials of the time. Mm -hmm. And he's really made many movies out of these things. They're just brilliant. There's a plot. The girl is saved or the, you know, the girls are saved, whatever, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, it, the things, the little items that were in there, like you mentioned, the keychain, mm -hmm. the things floating through the air, the, mm -hmm. the car itself with the Z's yeah. on it, just yeah. brilliant, brilliant thing. It really was. Absolutely. No doubt that that contributed, contributed mightily to the overall success of everything yeah. uh, to do with Eliminator. It sure did. One last little bit about the song that I wanted to mention is at the end, when everything cleans out and it's just that drum beat or pattern, I almost feel like that something like that could have been moved to like the middle of the song and then come back. Like there's a section where it all drops out and there's just the beat for a minute and then an explosive like reemergence boom. You know what I mean? What goes into the thinking of let's end the song this way? That uh, to end it, I actually took a section and looped it. I edited it at the, uh, at the time. There weren't mm. Pro Tools and things, so I had to do it all manually. But Billy had played this little little minor blues uh, riff on the guitar. And I just thought, that's really cool. Uh, but it didn't appear anywhere else in the song. And I didn't at the time 
know where we could put it. So I just yeah. like, let's put it at the end. So mm -hmm. I just edited the drum thing and it. the guitar thing together and had it just repeat and fade on it. Yeah, uh, great outro. Yeah. Oh, great, thanks. Yeah, love it. Okay, track two, Got Me Under Pressure. This was, I think, not an officially released solo or a single, but did get some airplay. I think I remember hearing it on the radio. So absolutely. How did that happen? Did just certain DJs decide they liked it, wanted to play it or what? Yeah, I probably started at FM radio, which at the time would play album cuts, <laughs> uh, whereas AM radio would play only singles pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so or unless they had a special show at, the, at nighttime or something like that. But I imagine FM radio DJs just thought, wow, that this one's really good too, and would play it. And that song is still one of their most popular. Mm. You, uh, I think they open their shows with it uh, very really? often. Really? Okay, I have never uh, seen ZZ Top live. Never. You know, uh, I saw them, of course, many, many times uh, uh -huh. in the seventies and eighties back then. Then they got to be not quite as good live, maybe uh, mm. for a little while probably related to the whole everybody's not quite playing as good as they were but i saw them recently very recent just well less than a year ago and they were they were phenomenal and of course wow. dusty's now gone yeah. and there's a, in, a total new bass player but a person who was very was a, a dusty's a bass tech a technician yeah. many years knew the set very well knew every song well was a great musician himself uh, so Elwood now is uh, playing bass uh, and had the beard already. <laughs> That's really? <laughs> but uh, they were That's actually great. better than I had seen them, let's say, 15 years ago. Wow. They were okay. really good. good. They had a great show. Beautiful have... set. It's a beautiful set designer. I'm sorry. That's great. Ahead. No, that's fine. I have more questions relating to Dusty when we on some of the other songs that come up. But um, I wanted to ask you about, so then Sharp Dressed Man, comes out and that's the second single and the the video carries on with sort of a narrative thread of these guys mystical i don't know rock and rollers kind of there to save the nerdy guys or whatever the one thing that i thought was interesting that i i guess only not every one of the four singles off the album actually cracked the top 40 give me all your loving was number 37 and legs is number eight and I'll, we'll get the legs in a minute but they all did really well on like mainstream rock charts and uh, pop tracks and all those kind of peripheral, you know, lists at the time. Yeah, and that that's sort of the way you don't at the time. You can think, look back now and sort of think, oh, ZZ Top had huge hit singles. Yeah. But really, many rock bands didn't have big singles as we would at the time know. Yeah. the billboard singles chart yeah. and billboard i think just sort of didn't give them their due in many cases that's but what i was thinking yeah they did have these other charts and things would be really big on that and and would sell but the album would just sell 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 from those plays on fm radios and uh al alternative charts and alternative stations college radio things like that uh, would just drive the album sales like crazy. Yeah. So it's easy to look back and think, these uh, 
Sharp Dressed Man was number one single, but yeah. it wasn't. It no. was just number one in the hearts and minds of right. people who were listening all over the world to other other ways than just, it was sort of the beginning of the end of Top 40 Radio in, in yeah. a way. That's what I was thinking about because these songs, especially those big three, are so ubiquitous. To imagine yeah. that not all of them were top 10 hits or whatever seems so weird because between the videos and the radio plays and just pop culture at the time in general, they were so ubiquitous. They were, it was a daily dosage of ZZ Top practically, you know, in a good and, way. And, and, this was a great and, thing. Right. And MTV, of course. Yes. Yes. That's it. That's it. With One thing I want to ask time. you about the, oh, go ahead. Sorry. At the no. time, MTV was actually music TV, yes. music television. <laughs> it is not what it is now. No offense, but offense. No, 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 no. Uh, it, uh, those were the days back then. Um, one thing there it's these little accents that I always am curious about in, um, in sharp dressed man, there's that deep voice that goes black tie. And like, where does that come from? Who thinks of that? Is it two o'clock in the morning and you and Billy are thinking, you know, it'd be really funny. Let, let's put in a black tie in here. But no, that's Billy. He, you think back to Lagrange. He's all, mm -hmm. got a that's lot true. of nice girls. You know, that's he's true. always done that yeah. deep uh, Texas blues voice uh -huh. thing, and he just he'll take many of the tracks we would go through, and he said, "Let's do an Adler track," mm -hmm. and he would just go through after the vocals done, uh, and then do little off asides, you know, little mm -hmm. things. He would do many that we didn't put in. Sure. It didn't come up. Let's use that one, but not this one. Yeah, let's use that one. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just Billy's a comedian in many ways. Mm -hmm. He's obviously extremely professional mm -hmm. at being a musician, but he loves to have fun with it. He's always been that way his whole life. He's Reverend Willie G. He's <laughs> got whatever barbecue brand he's, you know, has at the time or something. <laughs> Does his own brand of Rio Grande amplifiers and things. Yeah. So yeah. it's just fun. And I, I love that. I just love yeah. it. It's, it it really shows his his deep deep intelligence. Yes. Because you've got a it's a it's a lot to think about there. It's mm -hmm. kind of like George Carlin's in your band. Yes. Ooh, <laughs> good comparison. That's perfect. Um, uh, Guitar World magazine ranked the solo from Shark Dressed Man as the number forty three best solo of all time. And um, there's a lot of solos in this. Every song has a great singular solo. I'm going to ask you more about that in the end. Um, okay, the fourth song, speaking of soloing, is I Need You Tonight. This one feels like a just a total blues workout. And I will be honest, I shouldn't admit this, the, I, my tolerance level for too much blues is pretty thin. I, uh, I'm not one of those people who can do like, I love Stevie Ray Vaughan, but I really don't want a 12-minute workout of Little Wing or whatever. Keep it to like three or four minutes and I'm happy. So... That is not one of the songs that I gravitate to because I just don't need oodles of blues. But what was the thinking there? Was it just a workout for him? Well, the, you don't, when you're sequencing an album or planning an album, mm -hmm. uh, at the time, everything's different today because they're, they're really, the way things are streamed has changed everything. But at, back in that day, when you thought of an album, you thought of, okay, we're gonna, it, it's almost like a live set. We wanna start strong with this. We wanna build up tempo a little bit, up tempo a little bit. Then we wanna bring it down. Mm -hmm. 
and we want to because if you just go fast 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 over and over and over and over it's too much of the same thing yep. and one thing one thing of many that billy is is brilliant at doing is a slow quiet blues based definitely blue jean blues uh sure got cold after the rain fell other things off of other albums so he really wanted to keep and that keeps the fans happy too that loves easy for everything they've done so you've got the the if you look at the tempos it's uh, give me all your love and starts at one tempo then the next song which i guess was pressure is a little bit faster tempo then the next one's a little bit faster and is then as i need you tonight fourth i don't remember yes it is uh, fourth track okay then that usually after the third song mm-hmm. is where you bring it down yeah but you've got it's you just got to think of the emotions of the listeners totally agree. If they're listening to the whole thing which they would do in a live show it's, it's mm-hmm. based on live show uh um, rules yeah uh, yeah so, and in a live show you start strong you keep build them you build them but then you can't keep them going or they'll they'll suffer from it so you bring them down because then you can kill them you can bring that's them right. back up that's right so that that's the point really plus it's a it's a billy he's just genius at that slow oh, of blues. course it absolutely belongs there and it's so him there was a story that i read relating to punching tracks in and out with that is you it was all honestly technically a little over my head but break it down for me what does that mean on the guitars yeah, on the rhythm guitars especially, a couple of reasons for the punching on guitars. The first being, or one being, we were using uh, a Dean guitar uh, built by by uh, Dean Zelensky out of Chicago for Billy specifically. We had two Dean guitars that we used throughout the album for 99.9% of all the tracks with the same pickups on the same guitar or the other one just about like it. Uh, and I will say this at this point too, we used one amplifier only mm. a small amp, fairly small amplifier, 50 watt amp with one 12 inch speaker and one microphone in one position, whether we oh. were doing leads, l- full lead guitar, rhythm guitar, any overdub, initial guitar, anything we did exact same setup, nothing changed which doesn't ever happen. Yeah. But we just said, boy, this works. Don't move anything. Don't touch anything. Leave it there. Mm-hmm. So uh, this guitar, we're playing very loud over these huge JBL studio speakers, the monitors. And the guitar is so highly strung, mm-hmm. to use a, an odd metaphor there, but uh, that if he let go of the strings at any point, start feeding Mm. back really loud Mm -hmm. but we do that to get the feel it's like it's like you're live on stage it drives the player i'll have to kind of be careful you know Mm -hmm. have something near my ears or something because it'll it'll kill you but it's rock and roll it's what you do many Mm -hmm. many rock producers and engineers do that so uh if he picked up his fingers to change chords we would get this to the next chord mm-hmm. get that going so then the other reason is you then you lose continuity you lose the incredible grindy feel that these chords are doing because there was a sound honestly like no other at that time mm-hmm. i got phone calls from dire straits oh i'm sorry what's Ooh, the mark doffler 
Pardon from Mark in, in Dire Straits. And even Halen called, uh, uh, Ted Nugent called. When, after that album was out, called me up and said, just tell me how you got that sound. I need that sound. And if you listen to the next thing Dire Straits did, the MTV song. That's right. Oh, I never thought of that. Yes. He's trying to do Billy's get a yes. sharp dressed man guitar sound. And, and so many people were trying to get it. They, they just killed people. Yeah. But we just happened upon I, the mic I used, the, the amp that he chose for it, the position the mic was in, never changed. We said, we're not changing it. Yeah. And we started with Sharp Dressed Men with guitar overdubs. So to keep it continuous, that sound was so grindy. We wanted to make it almost as if it came from a synthesizer yeah. where it wouldn't stop at all between chords. Right. So Billy would just played the chords and then hold it until the next chord came. And we'd go to the next set of tracks, two tracks for each, two tracks for each, each guitar oh. thing. And go, we'd, so we'd go to the next set of tracks and start with that. And then I would put them together exactly in time so that that's, that grindy sound never stopped when we wanted it there. Wow. And Sharp Band is the perfect example of that. Oh. This, yes. Keeps grinding. And every time he changed chords are lick it went to another track but it's the exact same sound the exact same guy playing it's everything yeah. just put them together and you don't have the overhang you just have them butt right up against each other that it, is it was crazy incredibly time consuming it's incredibly difficult to get it just right at that mm -hmm. time today is yeah. nothing to it sure because of digital workstations wow oh my gosh oh my gosh um okay Track five, the last track on side one, I got the six. This one has Dusty on vocals, and I was wondering why. Well, they tried to be sure that Dusty sang a song on every okay. album. Well, that's true. Song. Yeah, good point. Because if you think back, uh, 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 Tush, Tush is his. Yeah, true. Uh, some of the best songs, and they're both great singers. Yeah. So you don't want to, even though Billy's in charge more <laughs> than anybody else in the band is, and I'm not putting them down when I say that. It's Billy's. You could tell from the documentary. This is yeah, it's all three people's band, mm -hmm. but Billy is the even more genius than the other two yeah. guy, who's yeah. who's uh, sort of calling the shots mm -hmm. when they need to be called, and everyone's input is put into it, of course. But Billy didn't want to just say, "Well, I got this great thing going, and to yeah. heck with you, right. Dusty, you go sing on somebody else's record." <laughs> <laughs> right. He wouldn't do that, you know. Right. Right. So uh, that was going to be uh, at least the at least one song that, that Dusty sang. Okay, it's a great one. Um, I was curious. I read somewhere that you sing some harmonies on this, and there are you can almost make out some harmonies. Would it have been on maybe a song like "I Got the Six? Do you know I where you are? I don't remember if it's that song. It might be if there's harmony on it. Uh -huh. But uh, there were two two people who sang harmonies on the album because Billy is an incredible lead vocalist with yeah. his special style, special sound, all that. But it's not the kind of voice you you want to do harmonies mm -hmm. that that you take something that that's that's moldable yeah. to the sound. It's hard to describe it exactly. Can be it. sweeter, 
can lay over nicely. There is an absolute incredible vocalist who I've used on the backings of many, many, many albums. Hmm. Just lots of things. I wouldn't even think where to start. Fabulous Thunderbirds, Molly Hatchet. Uh, I, I'm leaving out lots. Yes. His name is Jimmy Jameson. He, this is from Survivor, right? Yeah, the lead singer for Survivor. Yes. He, he hadn't, at the time of, of Eliminator, he hadn't yet joined Survivor. Mm -hmm. But uh, he had many of his own, several of his own bands that were almost big, uh, primarily one called Target out of Memphis, signed to A&M, very good band. Uh, but he was a jingle singer, too. He sang tons of commercials, and I still hear his voice on commercials today on the radio. Jimmy is sadly about a year and a half ago passed away, yeah. but I still hear his voice on current commercials. Uh, he did many big commercials, incredible voice, one of the best singers ever. Yeah. But he had the amazing innate ability to mold his voice to what is needed. Yeah. If you said, this needs to be a woman singing high and sweet, mm -hmm. he would sing in his voice, but it would fit like a yeah. woman high and sweet would do it. Or I need a low gruff thing. And he would sing it in his voice, mm -hmm. but it would seem to be it's he just could be perfect at what you wanted. That's Incredible great. thing. One of my really good friends for years. Oh. So between it was Jimmy and I will admit me, myself and mm -hmm. I here who yeah. did sing the harmonies on several of the songs. And uh, really I had Jimmy come into ardent and sing on some of them. And I late at night all by, all by myself would sing in other spots. And then uh, when we get to legs, you'll see that he, mm -hmm. that was done almost in, exclusively at my home studio. Wow. So uh, uh, Jimmy came to my house and I had a little booth Oof. closet that, that I made a vocal booth and he sang on legs in there. Oh my so, gosh. Jimmy Jameson is on legs. I had no idea. Yes. Now that you mentioned yeah. it, give me all well, your love. Jimmy, Jimmy and me. Yes. Two of well, that's what I was yeah. going to say. Uh, in the chorus of give me all your love and there's some nice harmony on that too. That was probably you yep. guys as well. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That was awesome. Um, okay. The first song on side two is legs. Legs is my favorite ZZ top song of all. Them too. Zeppelin yep. too. <laughs> well, uh, yes. Love Zeppelin too. It's the Z's. And that one reached, it was the fourth single. It reached number eight, which at the time was the highest Chart, charting hit they'd ever had um, my understanding is that the song was one way and people everyone was trying to fix it and make it right and it wasn't working out and you took the tracks and said let me work on it and you made it what it was does this sound right yeah more or less uh, we had okay. tried it in the studio there had been a demo of it without lyrics I believe but okay. uh, I'll, I'll have, can't remember every little thing exactly sure. but yeah, it just wasn't working out. So I took the tracks that we'd recorded at Ardent. Again, all everything recorded either at Ardent or in my home studio, which I called Cognito at the time. Because when you, well, when you're in it, you're incognito. So, <laughs> Genius. So that, well, I, it, it was silly, but that's what I called. It. <laughs> but um, I took the the lead guitar and Billy's lead vocal that we had recorded at Ardent. I took. I came to my studio at home all by myself up to late at night and everything, and I completely started over with new drum machine tracks, 
overdubbed the cymbals, overdubbed some toms, did the sequencing on the synthesizer. Now I was using what's known as, a, what the, it's called a memory Moog synthesizer. The, the brand is Moog, which rhymes with Vogue yep. and Rogue, but it doesn't, it's not Moog, it's Moog. Yep. But people, so many people call it Moog. Moog. Yep. But the brakes are called Moog, I'll put it that way. Okay. There's a car brand of brakes called Moog, but this is Moog, it's Bob Moog, he was my friend, I knew him, I asked him, it is Moog. So anyway, I got the memory Moog synthesizer, and it had a little rudimentary sequencer on it. Very small memory uh, at the time, memory chip was in it. So I started programming the you know, in the different chords and things uh, and had it arpeggiating and it, I ran out of memory. Oh, I can't do the whole thing on it. So <laughs> I ended up taking a cassette case, mm. jamming it into on the E note, jamming it between the E and the E flat uh, so that it just stayed in there uh-huh. and, and that kept the note held down uh-huh. so I could put other notes when I oh needed to. Gosh. But keep that. I didn't have to sequence the E. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's just oh crazy to think. I mean, today it's so easy. Anybody can do anything. They just yeah. if they have the sense to do it, which most don't. But at the time, you had to make it up. You had to find yeah. ways to do all these things. And I would dare say, legs holds up today mm-hmm. in the same way that I fought the law by Bobby Fuller Four holds Ooh, up. Oh, good one. Here yeah. on the radio, and it just goes. Bang, this could have been yes. recorded last week. Yep. You know, Les does the same thing. It just hits you with a ton of bricks yep. and it sounds as modern as ever. Somehow. Totally agree. Totally agree. Man, when you tell these stories, Terry, the ingenuity that it must have well, taken just to problem solve, to think, how are we going to get the sound that we want? Well, it's going to take duct tape and glue and screw, you know, yeah, it's going to, yeah. it's not something that a computer can manage for you. It takes this out of the box, creative thinking. Yeah. Comping vocals. If people, uh, I know, you know, but if listeners know what comping vocals is, mm-hmm. you do, you will sing a song. Now we were at the time on, on 24 track, two inch tape. Mm-hmm. So uh, after a while, you start to get close to running out of tracks. Mm-hmm. And we were earlier on 16 track. Of course, you could run out fairly quickly. But uh, with all the things we were doing, you'd start to run out. So anyway, you would sing the lead vocal two, three, four times as whatever tracks you had. Then you would start patching from on the patch bay from the whichever track you chose for a particular word or line or whatever into the new what will be the lead vocal track you're recording and punch in that part then you'd stop roll back find listen and listen and pick the next line or the next word or whatever to take the very best of all the live performances uh and as long as you do it right it sounds like the ultimate live performance now years later working with let's say mariah carey she she worked with two 48 track sony digital machines synced together she would sing a lead vocal up to a hundred times and comp from that uh, into what would be the first lead vocal the guide lead vocal listen to it and go i can beat that and then start again you know and then end up comping comping from hundreds of tracks yeah not that she can't sing it 
she just wants it because she's an incredible vocalist, whether you like the style or the music as much as mm-hmm. rock music. It's up to your your tastes. But uh, mm-hmm. as far as ability, power in a vocal yeah. can, can do it, the girl can do it. Absolutely. So, it wasn't that she couldn't do it. It's no. that she wanted everything to be the very best it can be. Mm-hmm. For her mind and for the listener. Same yeah. thing with comic vocals with, with Billy. So uh, because we're on 24 tracks only, you've got three or four, whatever number of tracks we had taken onto one. And it takes hours and hours to get that one chosen. Today, <sighs> people do it in an, a flash. It's yeah. nothing to yeah. all these little ways to have playlists and have it pulled down and mm-hmm. just copy. And it's just not no problem at all yeah. but yeah I, I felt bad when you said ingenuity because i don't say these things to build myself up or to oh, say i, I mean, know i know lots of people could do this and we're doing similar things but but it was a lot harder then no doubt yeah. about it yeah it's just you realize that the art form is beyond just recording music it's almost like sculpture or architecture or something like that because but, it's more tactile and hands-on then to be honest, people might realize. To be honest, exactly. But to be honest, what it's most like in my mind is making a motion picture. Yeah. Because yeah. If you think about it, when you're shooting a motion picture, they're not shoot, starting the camera and it goes all the way to the end of the movie and people went and did their things. Of course not. Yeah. They shoot a scene that might be 30 seconds long. It might be 10 seconds long. Mm-hmm. And then when they go back in, in a big production, Hollywood production, and I've been lucky to, or had the di- uh, a misfortune of working on many of these ADR sessions, they'll call it, mm-hmm. where they do the dialogue replacement. Mm-hmm. And in, when they're shooting a scene, let's say it's, uh, it's uh, Nicholas Cage and he's out there going uh, and there's a, a cop car and he's saying, stop or I'll shoot. he says it he says it on the set yeah but and they record it on the set but that's not nothing that's the sound shot when the when the picture shot is going to be in the audio later oh yeah yeah the sound sound of the car running off the sound of the gun going off everything is brought in separately and especially the dialogue the things Mm -hmm. the actors do so they'll come in look at this 10 second thing and we have a whole uh, a, a list of every it's incredibly well listed and set up ready to go start the scene and th- he'll practice it five or six times whatever it takes to make sure they'll hear beeps beep beep mm-hmm. beep beep stop or i'll shoot and they'll just get it in their head exactly and say it until they think it's perfect or the director yeah. especially says it's perfect so perfect. you put together and later you go back in post-production and do these incredible things, bringing all the right shots in, all the right sound effects in. I don't know, one movie I worked on with Nicholas, by the way, called Ghost Rider. Mm. I had the Pro Tools session up. We had, there was over 1,200 audio tracks in this one scene. Oh. You know, it's nuts what gets done in things. Yes. Making an album is much like that. Now, not yeah. quite to that extent, because right. you're you're making a, 40 minute piece Mm of music rather than a two hour movie Mm -hmm. with pictures and all that. But still, especially back in the day when you had to hand do everything almost, it's a lot of work. The biggest albums that I've worked on that sold are the ones that took the longest to make. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And I've had people, we'd go into starting that album and people say, I hate that. Do it till it's, till you beat a dog to death thing. Let's just <laughs> right. do it and get it done and all that. And then we end up overdoing, redoing, uh-huh. punching, all that sort of thing. But uh, the incredible work went into Eliminator. Yeah. Oh, you Look can tell. Work. You can tell. Okay. Two questions real quick about legs and then we'll move on. One, somewhere Billy thanked Al Jorgensen from Ministry because he used some drum samples from Ministry of all people. And I thought, was that in, I read it in relation to this song, but I don't know if it was on this song or if it was on the whole album or what you were talking about samples earlier. Do you know Uh, what I'm even talking about? I I know ministry, but we didn't use any sound from ministry. Okay. Yeah. He thanked them somewhere for the inspiration for it. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Okay. And the other question I have is at the end of the guitar solo, there's that, the very last, I don't, I'm not a musician, so I don't know what the technical term is, but it sounds like the last couple of riffs are doubled or something, if you know what I'm talking about. Dun, 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 and then it goes back okay. into the song. Do you even know what I'm referring? And is that, what is that technique? Uh, yeah, it is, it is doubling. Okay. Really, uh, we'll, we'll often go back and do little add-in things yeah. to a lead track. Uh, okay. There have been times, which is, this is crazy, but there have been times when I had to do something to or with the guitar while he played it, oh. sort of like putting the cassette in to keep a cassette wow. box, yes. to keep a, a note down. He would say, yeah. now you need to hold this fret down here. Just don't do anything, but hold that fret while I do all of these fancy things. Oh my and gosh. Then, so I'm doing oh one gosh. thing that a monkey oh couldn't do. You know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm doing one little thing while Billy's the genius doing things, oh. but, uh, it's just that you. Some of the things he would think up were almost impossible yeah. to do. Oh, I bet. I bet. I just have always loved. I'm a big believer in. As I was talking earlier about that deep voice and stuff, there's the sprinkles of pixie dust is what I refer to them as. These yeah. little, these little things that elevate a song and make it special. And when that little bit at the end of his guitar solo where it doubles up or gets thicker, I've just always loved that part. Uh, okay. Well, you think, think oh, about it, it. It's taking the end of an incredible solo. Yeah. And it's going to lead back into the incredible lead riff. Good point. Good point. Good the down, 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 Yes. It's like the culmination of these two things yes. reaching the mountaintop. So you do everything you can to build, 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 build excitement. And then it's build and release, build and release. And it's yeah. going to release, but it's going to release into this incredible other mm-hmm. guitar thing. So you can't have a weenie guitar at that point. Yes. No, that's right. It's got to be really something. Good point. Um, Okay. The next track is Thug. This one might be slightly problematic. This was one that that Hudson guy did eventually sue, claiming that he wrote himself, and I think he won. So I assume it's okay to say that. Um, No, there there was a lawsuit, and uh, the, the mentioned party did... Uh, win that and it, I think it's that it would make it obvious that he he contributed mightily to the song yes. itself. Okay. Not to our recording of it, but to the song. Got you it. Read it. But yes. Got it. So my question, my main question around Thug is that it is so bass heavy and there are just these talk about solos. There's like slapping, heavy slapping bass playing and soloing going on in that song. Was that Dusty or was that something completely different? That's Billy. Oh, it is. It's Billy playing yeah. those slapping bass sounds. Okay. Boy, he's he can do everything. 
Kenny. Oh my god. The guy's gosh. a genius. I think he, he really has is. a shot. He might make it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I love that one. And I wondered who was behind all of that. Now, let's talk about Dusty for a minute, because I got to be honest, ZZ Top to me seemed like the kind of band that if you were to lose, I mean, obviously, if you lost Billy, it'd be over. But even if you lost Frank or Dusty, it would have been really difficult to carry on after that. And yet they are. And I think if I remember correctly, Dusty may have even said as much like in his will or something. I want you guys to continue on even after I die. Maybe I'm making that up. But what I, I don't know if it was written in a will, but I know he told Billy that for sure. His Billy wish was to continue kind of on. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you don't want the thing that you've built your whole life to yeah. die just because you died. You know. Yeah, yeah. Were you in touch? You mentioned. Were you? Did you know he was close to death? Were you? Did you get to say goodbye or anything? I didn't really get to say goodbye. I didn't see Dusty for an, a few years before that. The end his end but uh but yeah people everyone knew if uh and if you look at the last show which i think was in louisville i'm not sure but the last show they played he was sitting down he was obviously having struggling but he wanted to keep doing it because it's Mm -hmm. his first love so uh uh, that was just very sad but yeah but yeah you you carry on you do your best yeah and if it was his wish, then it makes sense that they continue to do that. And it sounds like Elwood's doing a great job, and I haven't been able to see that for myself. But if he is and and crowds still come out, then by all means, they should continue to take that victory lap. They've earned it. Okay. Eighth song, third single is TV Dinners. Um, that's my favorite video off that album. And it was weird because I remember that video I, it didn't look anything like the others. There's no car or girls. It's... Uh, animated dragon or monster coming out of a TV dinner. Just a genius. I loved it. The song is not quite as good as the video. In my opinion, it's a good song, but the video is great. Where was the... It's kind of a surprising pick for a single, I gotta be honest. If you take the video out of it, there feel it feels like there are other songs on the album better suited to a single. I thought so at the time myself. I mean... I, I wouldn't say that any song was a throwaway, but TV no. dinners would not by any of us looked on as the be all and end all or the, or the no. definition of eliminator. The video, by the way, was shot by a totally different person. Tim Newman did well, not you do can that. Tell. And that the other videos do not feel like time, like the eighties. They could be playing anywhere, but that one with like the, the, the set that the guy in the video is obviously on, it feels tied to the era. Yeah, a guy named Marius Pinsner did that video, uh, living in Memphis at the time. Uh, he's fairly recently passed away as well, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it was very different. It did surprise me. I like it. I liked all the songs on the album, but uh, TV dinners wouldn't have been my... I would have gone with Under Pressure yes. or uh, any a couple of others maybe too. Yeah. Speaking of others, to me, Dirty Dog, the next song, sounds like it could have been a very easy fifth single. And since, you know, it's interesting, I'm just realizing if Legs is the fourth single and it's the biggest hit they have, by that point, are they just done and tired, too tired to release a fifth and do another video and keep going? Because they finally got like as high as they were going to get. Do you know? I don't know, really. That would have been... 
Bill Ham's call okay. uh, mixed with Warner Brothers, I think, the label. So I don't know who decided. I I would have, or maybe, are you sure they didn't release another single? Uh, not that I know, not according to like Wikipedia or whatever I yeah. was Googling at the time to. I yeah, Dirty Dog would have been great. Uh, under, again, Under Pressure would have been a good yeah. one. Yeah. But I would have kept going. Why not? <laughs> Milk I know, it. that's what I was thinking too. Surprising that your biggest hit is the last one. But Bon Jovi did something similar with Slippery When Wet after Wanted Dead or Alive. They were just done. They didn't want to keep, they were too tired. One thing about Dirty Dog that I find interesting is that it appeared in a movie called One Crazy Summer huh. in 1986. And uh, that movie had Rupert Hine. Do you remember the producer, Rupert Hine? Oh, sure. Yeah. He and Cy Kernan of The Fix worked heavily on that soundtrack. So it was very out of place. And I don't think it appears on the actual album, but it was featured in that movie. But it was featured three years after the fact. I've always thought that was kind of interesting. What's um, the name of the movie again? It's called One Crazy Summer. I'm going to look that up. I didn't know that. Yes. It's played near the beginning. So if you're, it's in the first probably 15 minutes. So if you don't like the movie, you don't, you can just hear the part and get off. It's directed by a guy named Savage Steve Holland, who made Better Off Dead as well. And both these movies have John Cusack in them and Demi Moore's in it. And it was, I loved it. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. That's where I first heard Dirty Dog, actually, because I didn't buy Eliminator in real time. I bought, I got it later. Um, okay, second to last song is If I Could Only Flag Her Down. One thing I was curious about is you've seen Billy craft a guitar solo firsthand. How does it work with him? Does he write it out? Is it all by field? Is it multiple takes? Are they comps from multiple takes? Or is it one? How does it usually work with him? It's actually all of the above. It could be all anything. Right. Usually uh, he knows the song well and has a solo sort of pre-planned mm -hmm. uh it's like live now he'll take when you hear him play lagrange now you hear the solo but it's not exact he's right. going off to different things it's still exploring still trying new things you know whatever so it, it would it would morph as it went along but usually he would know a general basis of what he was going to do and the guy can play anything so <laughs> uh -huh. Definitely. Whatever is needed, whatever's perfect, he's going to do it. Yeah. Um, it is kind of a, I don't know if running joke is the right word, but what I what I understand from back in the early days, especially of vinyl and sequencing, is that the second to last song is usually the one that is the most filler. It's the one that people have like the lowest expectations for. Because the last song is usually some kind of like grander statement. And by if you're still listening by the near the end of side two, that's where we're gonna plop the song that we have like the least amount of faith in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, and that's probably true. Uh, again, I don't know that that flagger down was considered as by Billy or Bill or anybody as a throwaway or a filler. I don't song. think there are any weak songs on this album. There were honest. others that we there were other songs we were working on that we wanted to put in. Uh, Can't Stop Rockin' was one that, that later, in another form, uh, ended up on uh, on uh, the next album. Afterburner. Uh, Afterburner, but, uh, which I did not work on. But they took that... So I guess I did work on it in some way. But uh, uh, 
can't stop rocking. We could never get it finished mm. quite right. Mm. So uh, yeah, flag her down was just uh, another good song that we liked, but yeah. I, because it was sequenced next to last, it probably wasn't thought of by the sequencer who did it. Oh yeah, that was me. Uh, <laughs> as, as the, as the, <laughs> the new single or anything. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's still a great song. As I said, there's really no bad songs on this album. It's just some uh, feel like obvious singles and some feel more like album tracks. And that's one of yeah, the ones that exactly. feel like album yeah. tracks. So it ends with bad girl. And I wanted to read something. I was in getting ready to talk. I Googled, uh, I found an article that ranks the songs off of eliminator from worst to first and bad girl, this particular critic, uh, or journalist says, um, it's been my experience that if a song starts with crowd noises and it's not a live track, then it's probably some bullshit throwaway jam. That's what he wrote. And uh, I wondered that, okay, so your your reaction to that says that was obviously not the intention of Bad Girl. No, Billy just wanted something blasting and exciting to end it yeah. with. Yeah, and, that's and I think my, it is. Yes. That's a good ending. That's also, I believe, the song where he his voice couldn't quite get to the Ooh, to the yeah, I think you're right. point he wanted and he went out and ran around the block and a couple mm-hmm. of times and got his voice all raggedy and then came in and just blasted it. <laughs> love it. I love that. Wow. See? This is what I mean. Like now you would just put some kind of a flange or effect on that. But Billy's gonna go out and run around to get his voice where he wants it, you know? <laughs> That's wild. Well, good. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, it's a classic. It is, uh, uh, they would, they become one of the preeminent bands of the 80s, thanks to this cockamamie idea that Billy seemed to have about where he thought he could take his band, and you helped him find that vision. And it couldn't, it could have failed so easily on every level. It could have sounded horribly. It could have disaffected all of the fans. It could have been embarrassing. It could have sounded dated. None of these things happened. None of them. And so it's still a classic. Well, I say a huge thank you for saying that because that you never know when you're doing something. Right. As I mentioned when we were first starting on the first playback of Gimme of uh, of uh, Sharp Dressed Man mm-hmm. and that guitar sound. I knew we had something. So everyone was very confident. But just because you're confident, I mean, you'll see movies with Mm -hmm. big stars in them. And you go, who was thinking this? How could they put this out? (laughs) So it could have easily imploded. But we're just very fortunate that we, we just hit the right nails with the right hammers, I guess. I agree. I agree. You nailed it. And you made a culture defining era defining piece of art through it all from oh, a band yeah. you would not have guessed would have provided that album you listen to el loco and it does sound like sound is becoming a little more modernized but it's not really i guess what's that the hippie what's the oh uh, yeah uh groovy little hippie sounds a little bit about what might have been coming in the next album but still just our, our manic mechanic maybe yes. to some degree but yes. yeah yeah that he billy didn't like to just do one thing and stay there oh, for know. instance I, I know you're good, ready to go but uh every time we came in to do a new album 
he didn't just unload the same basic equipment. Mm. Oh, yeah. He wanted to use a different primary amplifier every time. Yeah. On one album, the one with um, Arrested for Driving While Blind and Cheap mm. Sunglasses. Yeah, uh, is we that Afterburner? Or uh, Recycler, no, no. I believe. No, no, no. no. It's before. It's bef De well before. Deguayo or anyway. Yes, I can't I think remember. It's yes. that. But we we used a Vox Super Beetle amp head. Oh my gosh! I mean, it, it, no, it's a transistor amp, oh and God. it's nothing like what we'd used before. Yeah, and the sounds aren't the same at all. Yeah, but but being the incredible player he is, yeah. and the I will say this: the singular player he is, because yeah. no one else plays like him. Yeah. He's got that that harmonic when he wants it thing. He's got that. There's just something about his playing that is unique. Yeah. Uh, and that having that player playing through yet another different amplifier on this album, on yet another different guitar, whatever, still won the day. So it there does. you go. It does. Uh, Terry, thank you for doing this. I have selfishly wanted to have this conversation with you since we first talked two and a half years ago. And I thought I better give Terry some space in case he didn't <laughs> actually like talking to me so that we, you know, he's like, oh, that guy again. So I waited a while, but I'm so glad I waited because I was dying to talk about this album with you specifically. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure and uh, see you down the road next time. See you next time, man. All right, there you have it, Terry Manning. I just, I think we're so lucky to hear the stories of the albums that are just benchmark albums in history. You know, in our lifetime, I mean, I'm guessing most people who are listening to this are at or around the same age as me. And uh, these were, this was one of the pinnacle albums of our upbringing. And so to hear the stories told from producers like Terry is magical. We are so lucky to have this. Anyway, I hope uh, I hope you learned a few things, and I hope you walk away from this thinking, I'm going to go listen to Eliminator again. It's been a while. That's the whole point. All right? Thanks, folks. We'll talk to you soon.